This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 59, October 18, 1983. Well, I got that out without any errors. <laughs> we are all of us a bit on the weary side because we've been uh, having a ball here with uh, several guests talking into the far hours of the night and all day long and uh, settling all the world's problems, maybe. <laughs> We're happy to have with us uh, this morning uh, John Stafford, whom we had a while back for two sessions, and also Clint Miller, who uh, handles all our Christian Reconstruction work in the Pacific Northwest. Along so, with my wife, Elizabeth. <laughs> and uh, Elizabeth, of course. But uh, we're going to ask uh, some questions about economics of John Stafford. John recently uh, resigned as uh, the chief administrative judge of the Department of Interior Courts. His background is in economics. And since we are at a critical point economically, I think it's important to uh, deal with some of the indicators here. John, let's begin with the price of gold, which at this moment is uh, a little below 400. Let me add, by the way, that when this gets out about six weeks from now, things may have happened. But we have you here now, so we want to ask you uh, the question about the situation with regard to gold. Well, uh, Rush, uh, one of the nice things about uh, biblical uh, understandings and foundations, as you often point out, uh, as found, for instance, in the 127th Psalm, lest the Lord buildeth the house, they labor in vain who build it. And most of the people out there are laboring in vain because... Uh, they don't trust God. Uh, those of us who do, I think, have a tremendous advantage over everyone else because we're not surprised by the, quote, unexpected, unquote. And so, uh, again, I think the things that we talk about today will have applicability uh, six weeks from now when the tape comes out. That's one of the nice things yes. about being uh, based the way we are, soundly based. And as Jesus said, uh, of course, uh, build your house on a foundation of stone, not on sand. So when you have that, uh, really, uh, contrary to what you read in the daily press and the financial press so often, uh, you, we don't have the problem of uh, uh, that the economists often have, where they're quoted as uh, uh, economists surprised by latest unexpected development in GNP growth or interest rates or anything and everything else. Uh, I think that uh, uh, economics is not a mystery. Uh, it's uh, a product of uh, basic human nature, flawed as it may be, and, but still we're children of God. And so that uh, if you correctly understand uh, biblical principles, you can uh, uh, foresee, uh, I hate to use that word, I want to be careful using that word, but uh, foresee uh, future events in terms of the logical consequences of what's going on today. So if you make an accurate assessment of uh, the factual situation, a realistic assessment, uh, you can make uh, reasonable projections from that 
based on sound biblical principles. Well, right now, we are more than ever pouring money down every statist rat hole all over the world. Precisely. Instead of having learned from all the bad debts, we're trying to throw more money away. We are told that inflation is being beaten, but when we go to the grocery store, we get a different story. <laughs> right. Now, uh, given these indications of what is happening to uh, our money at the stores and our money in Congress, gold should be going up. Well, it should be, except for a number of factors. Uh, but before, again, getting directly to gold, because I think really the principles are more important than trying to make short-term guesses about uh, what the price is going to do. I think we're talking about at least two themes uh, related to what you've just uh, suggested. One is uh, embarrassment and one is reality. Uh, the reality as far as the inflation rate, at least according to the Sindlinger uh, group of uh, polls and uh, and uh, market research data that they do out of, I think it's Media Pennsylvania, uh, show that the uh, real inflation rate uh, is about 11.6% for this year, uh, vice uh, what the uh, government tells us, which is that the CPI is around 45 or 5%. And I see that the uh, establishment economists, such as Otto Eckstein of uh, Data Resources, uh, I call him crazy Wally Heller, uh, the uh, well-known uh, economist uh, who has been associated with the neo-Keynesian uh, way of looking at things for many years, have both in recent weeks told us that uh, inflation rates were going to be very low, 4 or 5%, and Otto Eckstein, for instance, was quoted as saying recently that uh, inflation was dead in our lifetime. Well, this is the most utter nonsense that I've ever heard, but it, it's not only a lack of understanding on their part. It also relates, I think, to a uh, deliberate policy on the part of the government and those uh, people, such as those two economists, who are part and parcel of, uh, if not the government directly, at least the government indirectly. Their interests coincide with those of the government. So the uh, American people, uh, again, are being ill-led and misled into believing something which is other than the truth. And uh, the truth is that uh, uh, inflation is not dead and that, if anything, the what I call the currency depreciation process and policy uh, has been continued and, if, uh, and as a matter of fact, and as a matter of fact, is accelerating. And this can be seen clearly, for instance, from the um, uh, data supplied by the Federal uh, uh, Reserve Bank of St. Louis, which, at least in the past, even though it was monetarist, I referred to as the only honest Federal Reserve branch bank. Unfortunately, even there, I'm uh, uh, greatly concerned because Lawrence K. Roos, R-O-O-S, the former uh, president of that bank, has retired and uh, I wouldn't be surprised uh, now to see an exodus of the uh, kinds of people who want to put out honest data. And uh, over a period of time, I would expect that uh, that would be another source of good information that we would uh, be losing. 
So, uh, but even looking at uh, those statistics, you'll find, and it was there's a little bit of a flap for about a week in the paper about it, that the uh, Federal Reserve M1 targets, for instance, were being grossly exceeded because, contrary to everything that Paul Volcker had been saying in recent months, the uh, Federal Reserve has been pumping up the money supply at uh, the highest historical rates ever since the history of the Federal Reserve, in other words, since around 1913. Uh, to cover that up and to try to mislead people into buying bonds uh, to help finance the uh, federal budget deficit, uh, they uh, have uh, decided to just uh, change the base to a higher level. So uh, the percentages then look better if you change the base. Uh, that's in the money supply area. This is very similar to what they've been doing for some time with the consumer price index. Uh, they start with a base of 100, as they did in 1967, but in the past, the pattern has been that any time it got up to around 300, showing that the currency had been depreciated in terms of purchasing power to one-third of its previous value, then they just changed the base. So I'm expecting, frankly, that any time now the government will come out and say, well, uh, uh, for this purpose and that purpose, and I'll give you a bunch of phony excuses and reasons, uh, that... Uh, we now are going to, let's say, a 1976 base, and we're going to call that 100, and then, you know, things won't look as bad. Uh, and also, I think one of the points that Sindlinger is making, that the components that he uses to make up the Sindlinger Inflation Index are based on real things that real people buy rather than the semi-phony components that make up the uh, government's uh, consumer price index. And just as you were suggesting, Rush, uh, uh, if you you know, if you know go to the store, what has gone down in price? Uh, I, I can hardly think of anything uh, that costs less today than it did a year ago. Uh, but the uh, uh, public is being deliberately brainwashed into thinking that inflation is under control, partly to uh, help... Uh, uh, the government finance uh, its huge budget deficit by inducing people to uh, purchase government bonds, uh, the same thing on the municipal level, uh, and then uh, also uh, to help the banks uh, from uh, being even more obviously insolvent uh, because a lot of money has gone into the banks in the form of uh, huge deposit increases, and the government has facilitated uh, that process by uh, uh, deregulation and uh, very expensive advertising campaigns on the part of the banks to get people to put their money in the banks. Even the government now, I see in uh, a, a recent ad, uh, is coming out and talking about now that you can buy U.S. Uh, government uh, bonds, which they characterize as, uh, as uh, risk-free, which is untrue, and uh, especially in terms of purchasing power, and also uh, as uh, uh, having other characteristics, you know, which are not true uh, because of the variable rate aspect. Uh, by the way, I think that's a signal that we are, in fact, going to see a huge resurgence in interest rates. Uh, but again, for, for as long as they can get away with it, they want to cover up uh, the embarrassment of the fact that the situation is getting more and more out of control. And so they're taking uh, just about every route that they can conceive of uh, to mislead people into thinking that things 
uh, are all right and, and, and that the ball of wax will be held together, uh, whereas in fact uh, uh, beneath the surface things are uh, deteriorating at an accelerating rate. Clint, do you have a question here? Well, John, yes, I, just to get back for a moment to this potential loss of uh, a decent data source in the form of the uh, St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank, is there, if that does in fact occur, is there another place where an interested layman can get uh, uh, decent data firsthand? Well, without going into all the specifics, uh, uh, and I don't know really what you do in this respect, uh, Rush, in the Easy Chair series as far as giving plugs <laughs> are concerned, uh, but uh, I would say at least uh, in a general way that uh, you would go to the private newsletter industry for your information, and uh, there are a number of excellent services which uh, you can't necessarily read and immediately react uh, and act uh, upon without thinking and doing your own thinking and filtering, uh, but which will give you a much better view of reality and of, quote, truth, unquote, than you'll find in the pop media or even from governmental statistics. And I have in mind the bank credit analyst. Uh, that's one that uh, is offshore, not, uh, as far as I know, part of the uh, U.S. establishment, and uh, they do probably the best work of uh, anyone uh, that I know of in the world in analyzing the uh, uh, U.S. domestic banking situa situation, the international monetary situation, and the international banking situation. But there are a number of, of sound services, and again, I could give a list of uh, ones that I uh, watch and uh, take now and or would intend to take in the future at the time that I felt that it was necessary because of what you just uh, were mm -hmm. suggesting. Uh, I think for the next few weeks or months you can probably count on some of the statistics from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, but I'd say uh, by sometime next year uh, they will, will have become uh, much less reliable uh, than they have been in the past. In terms of what you said earlier, John, that we are now seeing the highest inflation of money and the increase of credit in the history of the Federal Reserve, doesn't this point to hyperinflation? Well, I think absolutely so, and uh, I would recommend to anyone uh, that they purchase a copy, and you can buy it through the Foundation for Economic Education, I know the Cato Institute has reprinted it, and others, Fiat Money Inflation in France by Andrew Dixon White, who I understand was the first president of Cornell yes. University. And he did an historical study of the uh, French Assignon inflation in the late 1700s, which coincidentally, and this is the thing I care myself more about than uh, really making money or the economic uh, angles, uh, is that every time you've had uh, hyperinflation, it's led to the rise of a dictator. Uh, so a uh, careful study of that book, and it's a very small book, I think it's mm -hmm. less than 100 pages, uh, would uh, show you that uh, as a hyperinflationary scenario uh, develops and prices, uh, interest rates, etc., cetera, uh, start to rise at an exponential rate, which is just the flip side of the currency depreciating at a at a reverse exponential rate, if you want to call it that, uh, that there are temporary periods where all seems well or under control. 
And uh, I think basically what's happened, and we predicted this about five years ago, which was about two years in advance, uh, that the past uh, roughly two and a half, going on three years, uh, have been a, uh, a lull period. Uh, actually, it's less of a lull period in reality than, again, what you might have been propagandized into believing if you read you know, the standard media and watch, you know, Dan rather on CBS and especially the CBS morning show. I've gotten to the point where I watch it, go out of my way to watch it, but only for the same purpose that uh, uh, Soviet citizens read TASS and uh, Pravda to find out what the latest party line is. Uh, and uh, so uh, really the uh, that's sort of the bottom line on it. Well, one of the... Uh ugly facts about such a situation as this, John. Behind such an inflation is an erosion of character, of faith. And what you see as inflation steps up is an erosion not only in money, but in law enforcement, in the very nature of the law, so that uh, it becomes no law at all. In the uh, restraints upon people, so that you have a growing lawlessness, there is an inflation in evil in every area of life and thought. Precisely. I've been saying to my investment clients for some time that uh, currency depreciation I like to use that term rather than inflation because the word inflation has gotten uh, meanings and connotations which really aren't uh, as accurate as they should be. Uh, but this, that the uh, process of undermining the value of the basic accounting unit of society has the collateral effect of uh, undermining all other values in society. Now, for those who uh, like to control other people, uh, this has a lot of advantages. And one of the essays which hopefully may become a book that I'm working on, uh, is entitled The Monopolization of America. And this cuts right across the board, not only in, say, the gold mining area where there used to be 14,000 gold and silver mines uh, in the United States, and then at least uh, for a 35, 40-year period there were only about four or five. Uh, automobile manufacturers started out with 20. Now we're down to uh, four. Uh, even now with the uh, computer boom, uh, we're finding that if there were 50 or 100 companies that were in the, say, personal computer business, IBM is coming in now, and I think they're really going to blast all but a few others away. So uh, both in the economic and business sec sector as well as the governmental uh, sector, you have monopolization. Well, monopolization uh, coincides with totalitarianism, and totalitarianism uh, is just the flip side of, uh, of uh, uh, liberty, and uh, we are facing, I think, a tremendous uh, squeeze, as Jim Davidson's book points out in the book by that title, The Squeeze. Uh, the squeeze is on the middle class, and um, our uh, potential, not only potential for losing freedoms, we have been losing freedoms at a rel relatively steady rate, but the, the rate of loss of freedom is uh, is picking up just as uh, the price uh, level and interest rates, I think, are about uh, ready to start zooming again. 
and the time frame on that, uh, it's hard to tell uh, whether, say, gold starts up uh, a day from now, a week from now, a month from now, three months from now, or a year from now, I think is less important than the realization that uh, it will, in fact, move up, and it will move up substantially, and that this is one of the few ways uh, that a person can, can protect himself by having a uh, portion, at least, of his assets in gold or silver or gold and silver related assets. Uh, it's like buying an insurance policy. Uh, and uh, so this, uh, just as you say, uh, not only leads to a, uh, a loss of freedom generally, but frankly could lead to the uh, a real change in the nature of the American government. I think we're already into that process. Professor Larry Reed of Northwood Institute has come out with uh, a piece entitled, Are We Going the Way of Rome? And uh, uh, I really see uh, the possibility that uh, we will lose our status as a constitutional republic. Uh, I see even, as I said in my previous, uh, our previous talk, uh, the true potential for the rise of a dictator in the United States, the man on the white horse, and uh, what this means for Christians in particular and for the church and the work of the church uh, is uh, frightening, and we have perfect examples of what it means uh, in the Soviet Union and China, two places that come immediately to mind. So we really are under attack, and not only from the standpoint of uh, the fact that there are certain people who have a deliberate purpose in gaining uh, political and economic control, this monopolization uh, concept, uh, but also because they're running scared as well. Uh, they have built their uh, house on a foundation of sand, and uh, it's starting, their ball of wax is starting to unravel, and just as a wild animal backed in the corner will uh, uh, reach out and uh, slash uh, anyone who tries to get uh, near to him, uh, these people, I think, will do just about anything to try to uh, keep their uh, entities in business, uh, to maintain the control that they have, and primarily to cover up the embarrassment that they're already facing from having done the wrong thing and having created these horrible situations uh, that we are faced with. Uh, so really, I remember Mad Magazine back in the 50s, not only uh, was uh, there the phrase that everybody remembers from Alfred E. Newman, you know, what me worry, but the other uh, thing that was always talked about was who's covering up. <laughs> and uh, really what we have is a massive cover-up. This uh, The Watergate thing was just sort of one little uh, peak, uh, one little indicator of the much more uh, general, much broader, much deeper, much more important uh, cover-up process that's uh, been taking place in this country, and I think that process will accelerate. So uh, going to your point, uh, Clint, uh, I think it will be increasingly more difficult uh, to uh, gain access to uh, good information. I know in my own, in my own life uh, I'm taking the time to beef up my personal relationships with people who I think are you know, quite excellent and know what they're doing. Uh, whether it's Calcedon, whether it's uh, Don McIlvaney, or Ari McMaster, there are a number of uh, excellent people, and I'm just you know beefing up my personal relationship, my professional relationship, my business relationship with these people, with these uh, sorts of people. 
and uh, I think we're, we're, you know, we have to do that because we're not going to be able to get the information from from other sources. Good, uh, John. You've mentioned uh, currency depreciation. Could you address for a moment uh, the strength or weakness of the dollar, uh, or what might what might be happening in the future? Uh, obviously, it is depreciating, but how will it compare, say, with other with foreign currencies? Mm-hmm. Well. You know, I don't like any currency because I think that uh, the the overview on a worldwide basis is that uh, all governments are in trouble because they've pursued the wrong policy, socialistic basically, and that uh, being all in trouble, they're all turning uh, to the same uh, remedy, uh, and that is uh, throw more money at the problem, print more money, and when I say print, I don't only mean physical printing, but also now with computers, it's just a matter of zeros. It's just a matter of moving decimal points. Uh, If the, for instance, Argentine peso was at one time one to one with the dollar, uh, it then depreciated to 10,000 to the dollar. So they decided, well, we'll do a 10,000 for one reverse conversion, and we'll call it the new peso. So they came up with a new peso, and it was back to one. Well, uh, the only problem with that is that then that uh, peso was depreciated by a factor of 10,000 times, <laughs> and now they're coming out with the new, new peso. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, these people are, you know, scrambling uh, to, uh, to try to cover this up, uh, but the way that they feel that they can do it most easily and keep the people fooled for the longest period of time is by uh, continuing to depreciate the currency at an accelerating rate. So, you know, the specific advice that I give to my clients is uh, that they should uh, uh, convert, as they are able, uh, more and more of their increasingly worthless paper into increasingly worthful uh, pieces of metal, especially precious metals, gold and silver. Now, there are other other, uh, inflation hedges and uh, each is appropriate for different purposes at different times. Uh, I wouldn't even be uh, adverse to uh, uh, participating uh, uh, in the diamond market now, uh, use, you know, in terms of uh, bargaining very hard uh, for, for deals. Uh, because the other angle now is that I think we are going to be faced after the 84 election with a series of controls, whether it's wage and price controls, uh, currency export controls. Uh, I can think of a number of different things. I've never recommended uh, to my clients until about a year and a half ago uh, that there was any necessity really to go offshore with any part of their assets because I felt the United States, you know, relative to the rest of the world, uh, was in the strongest position. And I'd rather have my money in a small community bank where I knew the president and the chairman and maybe even was on the board myself and you know, saw these people at the local Lions Club on a regular basis, and, you know, I was part of the community, so if necessary, I could call a banker and he'd get out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning and at least let me into uh, my safe deposit box, if not my checking account, uh, if it came to that. But uh, really, I think now, especially with Thatcher in in London, that, uh, and I'm not, you know, saying everyone should go offshore, but for Certain people, I think it might be important to place a portion of their assets, say in London, uh, say Bermuda, 
some of these other tax shelter and haven operations uh, I have increasingly found difficulties with and I'm not recommending them and I'm certainly not not recommending this in any way uh, as a way to uh, avoid uh, any of your existing obligations under let's say the tax laws uh, but just uh, from the standpoint of uh, having a diversification geographic diversification diversification of your assets because I do see uh, these coming controls I think that the U.S. government, uh, having made so many promises uh, that it cannot keep relating to Social Security, uh, relating to loan guarantees, relating to disaster aid, relating to uh, military and civil service pension funds, let alone the national debt on budget and off budget, does not have the wherewithal to pay for it. So uh, one way to do it is to expropriate capital. Uh, and uh, to do that, you have to have control of the capital. And to do that, you have to keep it within the United States. And to do that, you keep it from going offshore. Uh, one other thing. How do you feel about, say, accounts you've mentioned, uh, putting some monies, uh, diversifying a little bit? Uh, what about Swiss, or Swiss franc-denominated accounts? Uh, well, you can't get a Swiss franc-denominated account in the United States. That's one right. of them, the problems. So that means you have to go to Switzerland. I, you know, I don't necessarily have anything against Switzerland, but I have never recommended any of my people uh, go to Switzerland, partly because if you go to Switzerland, then you're going to be under scrutiny by the IRS because they're going to s suspect you of something which, you know, hopefully isn't true at all, that you're trying mm -hmm. to evade taxes. The other thing that bothers me, though, about Switzerland is that they are within a few hundred miles of 200 Russian divisions. <laughs> and even if you had a... Uh, very limited uh, theater uh, tactical nuclear weapon exchange. The way the prevailing uh, winds uh, are, uh, the whole country could be dusted with radioactive uh, materials. So, I, you know, I just cannot, I just not have been able to get excited about putting my money in Switzerland. And that's one of the reasons I mentioned uh, uh, London and Bermuda in particular. Mm -hmm. Well, we've already touched on it in what you've just said. Uh, we've dealt with the negative side of protecting what one has. But ultimately, what we've got to do is to reconquer. Now, in the economic sphere, what can we as Christians do to uh, exercise dominion and to bring back a sound order. Uh, let's begin with the presupposition that all this that you've said and I, uh, is going to happen, and I've long believed it is. But it's the death throes of the humanistic order. So we've got to think of bringing into birth something else. Now, do you want to talk about that, John? Yes, this is extremely important, Rush, and why I'm so interested in your ministry and the work uh, here of the men and supporters and associates of Chalcedon because uh, you don't just uh, point out the problems, you actually are uh, suggesting solutions. I bought all of your books, for unfortunately I've only read all or part of about five of the thirty so far because of uh, my, especially the last year, my double commitment of having a job with Interior Department plus uh, taking uh, nearly a full year of seminary courses at night, so it became a 
five or six in the morning till midnight uh, situation. Well, in January, when you're back for the month, we'll give you homework to do every day. <laughs> okay, but still, uh, it's been amazing to me that uh, that I almost seem to know even before. I buy the book, or as I put my hand in the book before even opening it and looking at the table of context, uh, contents, that uh, you and I are on the same track. So uh, there are a number of things that can be done. I think the number one thing that you start with is for each and every one of us to get our spiritual life in order. And I do really love Dr. D. James Kennedy of Coleridge yes. Presbyterian Church. I think he's a very sound man. And uh, the way he describes it is getting right with God. And uh, that goes back to what I said uh, uh, some months ago, uh, my favorite uh, verse in Scripture, uh, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord, lean not on your own understanding, walk in His ways, and He'll make your path straight. So if each of us as an individual Christian uh, gets our spiritual life uh, straightened out, then there are many benefits that will flow from that. That's the covenantal promise. Mm -hmm. And so if we get... Uh, our relationship with our wife, with our children, uh, our own economic house in order in terms of our own family budget and so forth and so on, then we will serve as examples. Uh, we will be the salt, we'll be the preservers. Now, on the other hand, we can be salt in terms of, uh, you know, in the wounds <laughs> of the world, uh, hopefully not in a way that would be offensive, but in a way that uh, would uh, bring attention to the ideas that we do have. And I think that the ideas we do have uh, w would range right across the board. I can think of uh, a myriad of different things that could be done. Uh, sticking for the moment to uh, the personal investment situation, I think that uh, it's uh, extremely important, and again, Dr. Kennedy has mentioned this uh, in a sermon. I bought all of his printed sermons, uh, I think three or four hundred of them. Again, I haven't read them all, but one of them dealt with the idea that uh, really we uh, who are of uh, the Reformed faith in particular, but uh, believers generally, uh, should take a very positive view of the world. Uh, a man has been given dominion, and as long as he does things for the glory of God and God's way, uh, that uh, he will receive a temporal reward as well as the eternal reward. Now, what is the purpose of receiving the temporal reward? to advance, uh, you know, God's purposes. And Jesus said to us in the Great Commission, go forth and spread the gospel. And so to the extent that uh, we are successful, that we are profitable, we'll have the wherewithal to back uh, organizations which are engaged in uh, promoting the word in a uh, true orthodox uh, Christian fashion, uh, not falling into error, but adhering to the faith, uh, my favorite hymn, along with Blessed Assurance, is uh, Faith of Our Fathers. And uh, really, uh, I just took a, finished a course with Scott Hahn on Creeds and Councils of the Early Church. Uh, you wrote a book on this. As a matter of fact, that was a textbook for the course. And uh, really, that's been uh, the work of the church, uh, besides its outreach and the salvation uh, side of it, is uh, to uh, guard against heresy and error and to maintain the integrity uh, of the gospel message, uh, not only uh, the message of Christ and just limiting it to the New Testament, but taking all of Scripture as a whole and integrating both the New and the Old uh, Testament. So that's one thing we can do. In the political area, I think it's extremely important 
to uh, use this wherewithal to advance the cause of, uh, of uh, good candidates for Congress, uh, the Senate, uh, the presidency, but also on the local level. And uh, I've grown increasingly interested in the concept, even though I've been personally associated for so long with the federal establishment. I'm almost a creature of the federal establishment, having uh, been raised in a military uh, family, my dad being a retired Marine Corps colonel. But really, I keep coming back to the Tenth Amendment, and uh, that basically says that uh, uh, only certain limited powers are given to the central federal government to do only those things that only it can do, such as external defense and the maintenance of uh, internal control on an interstate basis. Uh, all else really uh, should, be, should uh, devolve and reside in the states and in the local municipalities. Uh, and then any other powers that the uh, uh, people do not want to go give to those governmental entities resides with the people. So, for instance, this whole privatization process I think is very important, and I've talked to Bob Poole of Reason Magazine and Reason Foundation about this. He's quite interested in your work, especially privatization of the uh, school systems, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll be able to build a relationship there. So I think as people speak up and say, hey, uh, it's ridiculous to have a public school system uh, financed by forced exactions, which is taxation, especially of property taxes and uh, and income taxes, which a recent poll showed the American people hated the most, those two forms of taxation. And so I would go so far as, uh, and I'm working with Herb Titus on this, and you and I have talked about it, this concept of defunding public education, uh, the concept that uh, no public monies should be raised and spent on public schools. And we might not go right out and... Uh, you know, just from a realistic political standpoint, offend everyone by saying we're for overnight abolishment of public schools. But I think if we promote constructively the idea of of uh, putting all schools on a tuition basis, that both public and private schools will stand or fall based on the value that they're offering in uh, services. And so I think that's a very, very important area uh, of reconstruction and uh, and so forth and so on. It's one that I know you're you've been the leader in, and uh, one that really is the core of uh, of this whole uh, scenario. Because as the humanistic uh, empire does fall apart, uh, we who stand where we stand uh, should be preparing, uh, should be learning, should be educating ourselves and others, so that we could stand ready. Uh, you know, Phoenix-like to uh, come out of the ashes with a constructive, positive program based on sound principles. Well, we've discussed some very important areas, John. You've cited the essential character of a personal faith. We've dealt with ideas uh, that are biblically grounded, and of course that's our work here. You've dealt with the impact of uh, a Christian action in the area of, po of politics and uh, good, sound political action. And we have three very good friends of Chalcedon who are active precisely in the political arena. Of course, there's Howard Phillips of Conservative Caucus, 
And there is Bill Richardson with Gun Owners of America. And there is Paul Warrick, Committee for a Free Congress. Uh, three of the perhaps top uh, political groups, if not the three top political groups in the United States. I agree. All working with uh, common emphasis and uh, in essential agreement with us. So we're accomplishing something there, and we've made a difference in Congress already. Then, as you went on to say, there is the Christian school movement. Let me add to that a very important thing. And uh, Clinton and Elizabeth Miller were discussing this uh, with us uh, the other day. The home school movement, which is growing so very rapidly, and someone who was with us Sunday was telling us about a convention of homeschool peoples, I believe, in Dallas. Uh, they filled an entire auditorium. That's a tremendous movement. So we're seeing the forces for reconstruction developing very, very rapidly. And I'm glad you stressed the fact, and I... I'm reviewing this because I want everybody get, to get these points because <laughs> I feel they're so essential. I believe that we do have a moral obligation to do what you suggested, to conserve and improve our assets. Right. Because the scripture says it's the Lord who gives us the power to get wealth. Right. And he does it for his purposes. So if we are growing in our material assets, we have an obligation to grow in them in order better to serve God wherever we are and to better to fund His kingdom activities. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really, uh, I stand firmly in the uh, anti-non-profit mentality uh, mode. You know, mm -hmm. I, you know the concept of, uh, of being not profit-oriented uh, uh, I think can lead to uh, can lead to defeatism. If we didn't have the uh, Internal Revenue Code, and I'm basically mm -hmm. opposed to the federal income tax, we wouldn't even have to consider uh, this whole nonprofit idea. Yes, I think maybe that's one of the reasons that the federal income tax code was put in, so that over a period of time, people would develop a not-for-profit or nonprofit mentality. Yes. In a biblical system, there would be no income tax and no property tax and no inheritance or estate tax. And every organization would be under God. They would then tithe. That would be God's tax. And the only tax by a civil government would be a poll or head tax on every male 20 years old and older. Right. We did have that in the colonial era. Right. We've had it at different times in history, and it works. It keeps the state small and humble. Right. It means that the essential government is in the hands of families, institutions, agencies, and so on. Voluntary. Voluntary. We are a governing agency. That's our function as individuals, as churches, as families, schools, businesses, whatever we are. We feel that in Chalcedon we're a governing agency and we're teaching people how to govern. Clint? 
John, I wanted to ask you one thing, and this is actually a very broad question, but in, in building our assets, as, as Rush did, just suggested, um, can you uh, address your thoughts to perhaps the types of businesses, that the people that are so inclined to, to perhaps form new businesses that they might think about getting into? And I obviously you can only keep this on a very general level. but uh, Well, uh, I uh, don't look at any one thing in making uh, investment analyses and recommendations. Uh, I look across the board. In other words, I'm not 80% Elliott Wave or you know, 75% Dow Theory or uh, Richard Ney, of course, is into the specialists' uh, uh, activities, which I think are very important, uh, but he seems to solely base his advice on that. I'm very eclectic. Uh, you know, I look at everything. And one of the things that I, I find fascinating, uh, uh, and I think because there are biblical uh, uh, bases for it, although I haven't had the time to research and find out exactly what, what they are, but uh, uh, Martin Salbretti had a, a piece that he composed uh, during the uh, uh, arts festival that we just uh, completed in Sacramento. Uh, and again, I don't know much about music, but he said that uh, uh, the, the musical piece was based on uh, certain harmonic harmonic relationships that exist in the universe that God created. And uh, so I really do think that there's a lot to cycles. Well, this is all a prelude to uh, saying, among other things, that uh, real estate, by and large, on a very general basis, I think is an area not to be in. Uh, for the next few years. I really don't see it as being an exciting place to be. Now, uh, real estate is such an individualistic type of thing, and uh, geography uh, is so important that, again, I have to reemphasize I'm talking on a general level. But there is an 18.3, 18 and a third year real estate cycle, which peaked out in about 1979, 19. 80, and so it wouldn't be expected to bottom until around uh, 1989. And so I think that at least in terms of uh, a relative value versus other place that you, places you could put your money, uh, real estate by and large is not the place to be. I'll be looking to buy maybe heavily uh, the latter part of this decade, the first of next. Uh, the only thing I would say there is that, uh, again, I'm not necessarily recommending going into debt, uh, even on a 30-year basis for the purchase of uh, an asset such as a home uh, or a piece of commercial property, uh, but uh, partly because I think there's an immoral aspect to it. You, you're, you're beggaring your creditor neighbor because if I'm right and we see 30% uh, inflation rates and 25% mortgages, uh, it will all be very well for you to have locked in a 30-year loan at 12% and uh, benefit from that, not so much that the real estate has gone up in value, but total package, including an assumable loan, will be very attractive and allow you to get more for your property in the future. But uh, again, you've engaged uh, uh, in a way, I mean, no one can predict the future, so maybe the creditor will come out better, uh, But uh, and of course he's an adult and he's you know, taking his risk. But basically what I'm saying is that uh, with the exception of the finance, financing angle, that I don't really see uh, real estate as an exciting place to be. So 
except maybe setting up a discount uh, a real estate firm uh, to undercut the competition and actually make sales when others can't because they've kept their commissions too high in the 6 to 7% area, uh, I don't see a lot uh, going in real estate. I guess the only other thing would be that uh, uh, apartment complexes in the uh, 3 to $4 million uh, range, uh, garden apartments, might be good because, uh, for instance, even the one that I'm living in, uh, a new management company has come in. Uh, they've jacked the rates up quite a bit from being too low to being uh, fairly reasonable now. And uh, there's been a very little construction of uh, new apartment buildings. Everybody has went condo the last few years. And so there could be, uh, for the larger investor, an opportunity there. But otherwise, I'm unexcited about real estate. The stock market I'm extremely uh, excited about. I, and I guess the shorthand way of saying is uh, this is that I just see a replay of the 20s. I mean, all these options that are coming out and new futures contracts and options on futures. Uh, I mean, it, it reminds me, and then you can buy futures on the indexes of the Standard & Poor's and the Dow Jones and the Value Line and so forth and so on. Uh, really, it's like the bucket shop operations of the 20s where you just went in. It was a gambling-type situation. You bet on whether the Dow would be up five points or down three points that day. And, of course, mm-hmm. now, again, this concept I've been promoting, of it's just a question of zeros and moving the decimal point. Uh, instead of three- and five-point days up or down in the stock market, we're talking about 30- and 50-point <laughs> days up and down in the stock market, as we predicted two years ago. Uh, and uh, the, the uh, New York Stock Exchange, as uh, long ago as three years ago, was pre- preparing for 200 million share days. We haven't had those yet, but no one believed me when I said we were going to have 100 million share days. And uh, I think we're just going to get a wild uh, inflation-based uh, uh, blow-off uh, to the upside in the stock market uh, for the next two, three, four years, uh, followed by... Uh, uh, perhaps a substantial uh, setback in the late 80s, which may appear to the vast majority of people as being uh, the end, uh, similar to the 1929 crash. And a lot of the people, uh, I hate to mention names, but it's, you know, let's face it, Tom Holt and others who have been predicting immediate crash for the last 15 years uh, may well be right finally, (laughs) or what I think is really true, uh, more likely based on the work that uh, Lieutenant Commander David Williams has done, and anybody who's 85 years of of age and has done as much serious work and is in as uh, fine shape mentally as he is, uh, I have to, you know, give a lot of credence to and respect to. Uh, his analysis would suggest that uh, that uh, we'd have a reboom in the 90s, and so uh, what I would st- uh, one way of again saying it is that we could have uh, a uh, this would be uh, similar right now to the early 20s, not the late 20s, and so we could have a boom followed by a severe setback, followed followed by another boom in the early to mid 90s, and then perhaps in the late 90s. The uh, deflationary depression that everybody's been talking about for so many years may actually take place. It's just that uh, many uh, people will will have turned out to have been uh, 20, 25 years premature. Well, you know, <laughs> that isn't very helpful. Uh, if they tell you deflation is just around the corner and you've bought bonds 
and the bonds, as the Whoops bonds did, which I warned people about for 10 years, uh, dropped from uh, a price of 100 down to $5, uh, and then you've lost purchasing, that's market value, and then you've lost purchasing power value on top of that because of inflation. I mean, this is insanity. Uh, you have to deal with uh, with reality. You can't just be ideologically committed to some particular view of the future. And my view of the future is a is one of uh, uh, currency depreciation, which is another way of saying inflation. And until I see serious, sound, good reasons for thinking otherwise, you know, I have to go with the flow. Uh, a trend once set in motion continues until it ends. And that sounds like sort of a crazy idea, but it really works. Uh, it's, it's related to Newton's law of motion. And uh, unless uh, some external force acts on it or internal crumbling changes uh, the scenario, uh, you have to expect that the purchasing power value of money will continue to decline. And that the only thing really that could change that that I can see is... Uh, Again, what the bank credit analyst euphemistically calls a financial accident. In other words, if the people who are currently controlling things lose control, then yes, you could have, in fact, a deflationary collapse. But uh, I've been more and more impressed in, in recent weeks with uh, International Money Line and Julian Snyder. He's talking about an inflationary depression. In other words, continued depreciation of the currency at the same time that the economy deteriorates, at least in terms of certain sectors. Some groups uh, and industries will do well, others will do poorly, and that, from an investment standpoint, means that you have to be increasingly more selective about where you put your money, whether it's on an entrepreneurial basis where you put your own company together or whether you're buying stocks on one of the exchanges or over the counter. Do you have another question, Clint? Well, yeah, one thing about gold, and as far as if, if this would, if we would have a boom through the 80s, uh, sort of a, a bust, but a temporary, and then even a, a bigger one in the 90s, how, do you think gold will be following that? Yes. In other words, uh, contrary to uh, my uh, uh, a man for whom you know I really have had a lot of respect and who has done a lot of pioneering work, Jim Dines. Uh, who used to put forward the idea of uh, contracyclicality, uh, that uh, if the stock market were going up, that the gold market would have to go down. Well, that may have been true under the, uh, and was true under the conditions which previously prevailed. But as you move into a hyperinflation, just the opposite is true. The stock market and gold get into gear together. And there are a lot of sound reasons for it, which we really don't have time to go into. But if you examine, for instance, the Weimar inflation in Germany in the 1920s, teen, late teens and 20s, you'll find that uh, the best way, the two best, the three best ways to uh, to protect your uh, increasing the purchasing power of your increasingly worthless uh, German marks was to invest in either foreign currencies such as the U.S. dollar or to invest in uh, gold or silver or, or diamonds. Uh, and uh, the third area was the stock market. And I've seen charts which show that uh, as the uh, uh, price levels went off into an exponential rise, uh, that the stock and gold and diamond and foreign currency markets basically kept pace with the currency wipeout. And uh, so I think that's the way that you protect yourself. You want to be in owned assets, not owed 
assets. An owed asset, for instance, is a bond. And I think Franz Pick, uh, a little crazy as some people think he may be in a lot of areas, a man has been around for a number of years. I have great respect for age. He's been through four hyperinflations. I've been through two uh, myself. Uh, I was in China in 47 in Shanghai doing the yuan inflation, and I was in France when they did the 100 for 1 reverse conversion of the franc. I think that uh, he's basically right about bonds, that they are certificates of guaranteed confiscation. They're issued by people who have no uh, uh, intent, really, uh, morally, ethically, or legally, to make good on their promise to pay the interest and the principal. And uh, partly because they don't have the wherewithal and partly because they don't have the moral integrity. And so uh, you're loaning uh, uh, money to uh, a bad debtor. And uh, this is no different from what uh, the New York banks have gotten themselves into uh, with these international loans. And I don't know, Rush, whether it's really scriptural, but at least it's an old folk saying, uh, neither a borrower nor a lender be. Maybe you could uh, comment on that. Yes, uh, certainly we are told in Scripture that we are uh, to avoid debt, except for real necessity and then for a six-year span. And we are told that uh, we can be a lender when it is a charitable a loan to a brother, to a brother in the faith. But apart from that, we are uh, not to be uh, lenders, except we are told the ungodly are slaves to begin with, and debt is a form of slavery, so there's nothing wrong in being a lender to such, because they're seeking slavery, they're going to have it. This tells us that we are predominantly a slave people today. Right. That's why we are moving into slavery progressively as a, a nation, politically. Right. And all over the world, because people have departed from the faith, whatever label they wear, Protestant or Catholic, they've departed. They've made it secondary instead of primary and essential. They are departing from freedom. They're slaves. And they're going to feel the whiplash of slavery progressively until they return to the faith. Well, our time is about over. Is there a last word from either of you for a matter of a few seconds? Anything you'd like to say? Well, the only thing that I was thinking, uh, we didn't get a chance to comment on, uh, on it uh, earlier. It's a thought that I've had, and then... It was expressed indirectly uh, in a cartoon in, of all places, the uh, editorial page of the Wall Street Journal the other day. It was a cartoon showing a gentleman and his wife uh, leaving a church and shaking hands with a pastor who was standing at the door uh, saying goodbye. And he said, boy, I sure wish the government would adopt your, your uh, philosophy and only ask for 10%. And uh, my thought has been that, uh, and I'd like to find some scriptural basis for this, maybe some of the people who are uh, listeners to this tape and others can help us with this research project to find out whether it's biblically correct to uh, take the position that uh, we as citizens of the United States, for instance, uh, have an obligation to give no more than, let's say, a maximum of 10% minus a dollar uh, to the government. 
In other words, why should the government be entitled to the same as or more than God is entitled to and requires from us yes. in the form of the tithe? Morally, you're on sound grounds there. However, <laughs> the state has its own morality today, and the state's morality reflects that of the people. If people will not give 10% to the Lord as the minimum, as God's tax, God is going to sell them to uh, slave owners who are going to demand far more of them. And that's what the Lord has done. We are in slavery to Washington today and to the State House. We're in slavery to them because God is judging us and punishing us. And until we give God his due, any man who thinks that he is entitled to be a free man is a fool. He's morally unsound. Exactly. And in a recent Bible study, uh, and even uh, with uh, some of my uh, judges at uh, the department, uh, I have uh, discussed 1 Samuel 8, and uh, where it shows quite clearly the contrast. Uh, God is a great provider, and I would also uh, mention uh, Matthew 6, uh, versus uh, government as a taker. The king is, mm -hmm. is no more uh, than a taker. And uh, not only is the contrast uh, important uh, on that kind of a basis, but it, it backs up the, exactly the point that you're making, that uh, once we look to uh, a temporal God uh, for uh, uh, false security, uh, we are only enslaving ourselves. And uh, just recently I was reading your Institutes of Biblical Law, and I think it was footnote 2, that d discusses 1 Samuel 8. And I thought it was really fascinating that uh, you were pointing out that uh, the vast majority of theologians and interpreters of that particular passage have totally misread it. I mean, the plain meaning is exactly as you were just describing it, and yet they've come up with all kinds of alternative explanations and interpretations of what's involved there. So if I could make a plug for your book, I'd recommend people pick up a copy of the Institutes of Biblical Law and look at that footnote, uh, I think it was footnote 2, that deals with uh, 1 Samuel 8, mm -hmm. and also reread that scripture and, and give it a lot of serious thought themselves. Yes. Well, our time is up. Maybe in January, John, we can go into this matter of taxation and debt and its social implications. We... Uh, just mentioned this when we were talking the other day with R.E. McMaster, of course, who has 80 pages of work he's done towards a study of Christian economics. 80 pages just on the social implications, the economic implications of debt. Very few people realize how far-reaching it is. Well, we'll leave that till January. Good. Thank you all for listening in. It's been good to be with you again, and we'll look forward to our next session together.